Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Motion, a podcast from the High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, which is undertaking research into the complex and interrelated issues of sustainable transport across Africa and South Asia. The High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, HVT, is an 18 million pound investment by the UK Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. I'm Holger Dogman, your host for today's session. Welcome. Research is telling us that transport is not inclusive and urgently needs to change. This is a case across the world, but particularly in low and middle income countries. Accessible public transport, as well as safe infrastructure for walking and cycling are essential for people to access education, employment and healthcare, as well as social contact with family, friends and the wider community. The ability to move and travel independently is fundamental to breaking the downward spiral of dependence and poverty and to building strong communities and economies. And the third series of Reimagining Motion will shine a light on the inequalities across the transport sector and explore how those currently excluded need to not only be the beneficiaries of development, but more importantly, that they're agents of change driving that development. So we are very pleased today to have Sonal Shah. She is the founder of the Urban Catalyst and a Sunfall consultant for the Safety Working Group. She has co-authored multiple HVT projects ranging from inclusive transit-oriented development strategies in low and middle-income countries, understanding the institutional mechanism for scale-up of walking and cycling infrastructure, and led action-oriented research on mainstreaming gender and post-COVID-19 public transport operation in, in South Asia which she did also for the high volume transport. She's also acknowledged as a remarkable feminist voice in transport by Toomey in 2023. So really uh, happy also to have uh, Sunar here. Welcome Sunar. How are you doing today? Hi Hogar. Thank you for having me here. Good, I'm good. Fantastic. Our focus today will be on inequalities for women, girls, and other genders in transport, and in particular, the challenges and opportunities to improve infrastructure and transport policies. So, so now to get started, so based on your uh, high volume transport research, which we just uh, so highlighted in terms of looking into so COVID and post-COVID, um, tell us a little bit more, what are the key inequalities uh, women and other genders facing uh, they as they move around the cities and what do you think is the impact of these inequalities? Thanks Holger again for having me here and you know when we applied for this uh, HVT grant uh, which was a special call for proposals uh, right after the COVID-19 pandemic our biggest motivation was to fill or to understand this research gap which was how was how had COVID-19 pandemic impacted women informal workers mobility uh, not only in India but also in South Asia and how was it impacting um, their work and how were decision makers uh, responding to um, public transport operations and their needs. So that really was the basis for us to conduct this um, research. And so the first thing that we did was we looked at um, South Asia and some of the large and capital cities in South Asia, Kabul, Kathmandu, Dhaka and Delhi. 
in order to understand what was really going on. And then this was followed by a deep dive in the city of Delhi. And we did focused research with about 800 women informal workers in Delhi, along with a survey, uh, an online survey of another 400 women, because we realized that the COVID-19 pandemic was affecting women informal workers differently from other um, women workers as well. And we also found that while 81% of these women informal workers were using public transport, their PCAR trips, very interestingly, a majority of their PCAR trips, particularly in the morning, I think this was about, I think around 55 or 57% or so, were by shared paratransit. So clearly something is going on where existing bus services are potentially not able to cater to, um, to women and formal workers, the groups that need them the most. And I think this is, some, uh, this is something that really needs to be addressed. Uh, the second big piece that I'd like to highlight is the reliability of services. Um, because the COVID-19 pandemic uh, accelerated the digitalization of public transport, um, but what it was doing was leaving women informal workers behind because less than 10% of our uh, target group had access to a personal or a smartphone. You know, so then one, they weren't, they weren't able to get status on the estimated arrival of buses um, and therefore incre and this increased their waiting times too. A third and big piece, and I'll stop here and I'm happy to answer more questions, was um, enforcement of reserve seats in our, in our buses because in Delhi we do have about 25% of all seats reserved for men, women. And we found on one hand the reserve seats were not being enforced and also that we saw that the buses were not stopping for women. So I'd say reliability, safety, are two some of the two biggest uh, challenges, along with affordability, convenience, and comfort. We we heard a lot during COVID about the narrative on building back better, and particularly in, in terms of the climate and the opportunity. And here we said, well, there's a lot of of lessons learned. There's a lot of opportunities that now arise. So, what's your perspective on that from the the gender perspective? Where and as you wrote in the report, in fact, like okay, there's a chance there. There's this opportunity uh, there. So, do you see it as like the, an improvement? Real lesson learned, or are we more going back, not back better, but also more business as usual? Yeah, I think from a gender perspective in India, we are seeing two very interesting trends. One, and uh, I don't know how they're related, but I think it's still important, is in India, we are now seeing an adoption or fare free transport uh, for women in buses across multiple states or subnational governments in India. Um, it started with Delhi pre-COVID in 2019. It's moved to the state of Karnataka um, and Tamil Nadu in South India, to Punjab in North India, to 50% travel subsidy in the state of Rajasthan. So something very, very interesting is happening is that decision makers and particularly political leaders are really addressing 
what they perceive to be uh, as the as one big issue which is affordability um for for women and you know it's also it's not coincidental that it is happening right after the covid-19 pandemic how equipped public transport authorities are in addressing this increased demand we still have to see as they're all i think they're all just learning you know with seeing how it plays out and then adjusting their services in punjab in north india unfortunately they they don't know how to deal with the increased demand of women and the load if you will it is putting on the public transport operator uh, on the state government because it has to reimburse the public transport operator so we'll have to see but the second big thing is an acceleration of the digitalization of bus based public transport and unfortunately I don't think they addressed it before but even now I think there is not enough acknowledgement that we there is a gender digital gap and that if we don't why we digitalize if we don't address how women with limited access to uh, smartphones will use and access public transport we are really going to leave them behind so I think this this is these are the two major observations if i will from the covid-19 pandemic thank you we we talked a lot so far about public transport and and paratransit let's let's widen that you're so an experienced urban planner so based on your experience and work so what do women want and need particularly from urban infrastructure in a more generic terms yeah i think our work overall is kind of showing um i think five major things i think across all modes of transport and that is uh, safety reliability affordability convenience and comfort and this may play out differently uh, for different modes of transport but i think we really kind of look at these five key parameters when we talk about uh, women as users can you elaborate a little bit more on that give us some examples around these five areas yeah so i think safety is is i think well known both the perception of safety and the experience of safety so the experience of sexual harassment and the role that our infrastructure or our streets and public and paratransit services can play uh, i think reliability i've already spoken about you know especially knowing whether your public transport services are reliable and uh, how you can reduce your time poverty i think i've also spoken about affordability you know holger in in india we find um, this is dated but we found that across all women workers in india 45% of them walk to their place of work you know it's a big number and our own work in bihar is also showing that in spite and this is different from global uh, trends that even though women's per capita trip was about 37% lower than men women constituted about 60% of all walk trips so in spite of making fewer trips there are a majority of pedestrians and so we can see that affordability matters significantly i think convenience would relate to that whether there is good public transport connectivity and by comfort i think if you are a majority of pedestrians 
Are the streets comfortable? Are there um, adequate uh, seating areas? Is there shade, et cetera, et cetera, which is likely to impact pedestrians more and women more if they are a majority of pedestrians? Thanks, Sunal. When we, when we prepared the call, we had a conversation around the challenges also for trans men and trans women in India. And you mentioned particularly the issues of, of safety, and you highlighted that you did some work and some research. So can you share a little bit more about also that, that work on, on that group? Yeah. In fact, uh, actually, we did this as part of... Uh, uh, project preparation for two metro rails in India, where we uh, not only conducted focus group discussions with trans men and women, but we also um, did a, a, a safety walk with them in one of the metro rail stations in uh, Bangalore. And I think that the experience of this walk itself revealed so much you know, uh, to us, but also the metro rail operational staff who were there, who saw how passengers were responding to uh, trans women. One of the big pieces was staring. You know, I think the trans women themselves spoke about a, a significant staring from passengers uh, and the assumption that trans women waiting at bus stops are sex workers, which is fine, but then they used to get harassed by the police. So, and the third piece was also when we were talking to trans men who often would mute themselves in, in buses because they were fearful that um, if they had a seemingly effeminate voice, they would be stared at uh, again. So a lot of control and policing of their own behavior in order to feel safe, right? We also heard about frequent denials by um, auto rickshaw drivers or being charged higher fares um, by auto rickshaw drivers to carry uh, trans persons. And I think I would also like to bring up another piece is they also raised the issue of affordability and jobs. They said that, you know, we don't we don't only want to be we want to be employed in technical positions. We want to be employed not only as maintenance staff, but also as, um, you know, customer care service representatives or technical staff or train drivers so that there is an opportunity to earn higher wages as well. So I think all of these were highlighted by trans groups. And was there any, as you said, you worked together with the Metro, was there any response then to that? There were obviously there's a lot of lessons learned around the discrimination they experience every every day, but were there any, any recommendations yeah. or anything to pick up then on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, again, it's difficult to draw parallels, but that one of the key recommendations that we made was the inclusion of more trans persons as um, in the metro rail as well as employees. Um, and very soon after we saw that the Chennai metro rail recruited trans persons. Now, I don't know if this was coincidental or it had it was due to our work but um, we would like to believe that we had some impact 
Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned earlier your work in Bihar, where you worked particularly on a guidance document on the design. So what did you find out? What were actually, what are the crucial design principles? And are these, are these guidelines actually really also picked up? Yeah, such a good question, Olga. So, you know, one of the things we observed is that what we understand as good street design, let's say if we just talk about walkability right now, to a large extent holds true for women as well. However, there are certain elements that will disproportionately affect them, right? And, and you'll see that um, this has to do with access ramps, very small pieces, because if you are a caregiver or if you are a pregnant woman, uh, these are if you are someone who's carrying household goods with you, then constantly hopping up and down a sidewalk is going to be more inconvenient. The second big piece that that came about is obviously the availability of frequent seating. The third piece is street lighting that really impact um, uh, women more. And I think that the fourth piece and often missed is the crossing times at uh, signals, right? What is the pedestrian phase, for example? Again, if you are a caregiver, and this also applies to um, senior citizens also. So I think these, these factors stand out over and above the principles for good street design that we do know, you know that we need good walkable streets now. And the last piece that I will address is most street design projects start and end at the infrastructure, but we generally don't look at behavior change programs, you know, either with with people in that neighborhood. Like what if there is a place that is dominated by boys and you witness sexual harassment? You could address it by design, but we may also need to engage in some awareness raising campaigns as well, which also becomes important. Now, uptake. It's a really good question. Um, what we have been doing as an organization, as a consulting organization, is in our projects with public transport authorities, we take elements of these guidelines and, and include them um, when they are talking about multimodal integration or they're talking about first and last mile connectivity. We include them uh, as good practice for creating gender responsive streets. Uh, for adoption, I think it's hard. And this partly has to do with the fact that what might, if we had indicators that actually looked at maybe two major indicators. One is what is the perception of safety before the project, right? And then you understand safety not only as road safety or crime. And the increase in the number of um, women slash girls on that street. I think if we had these indicators, we might see an adoption of some of these guidelines. Right now, there aren't any, right? So I think, yes, it, it, I think it's a constant constant nudge, push, constant advocacy. I like the, the hinders to, to advocacy and the importance is actually of, of different pressure groups also to do that. And as, as you said, providing more 
data and providing actually uh, showing the changes. So now so you, you mentioned the importance of more surveys, of, of more more indicators. We talk often in the context of, of gender and inclusivity is about a so data gap. Is there from your experience any good example for data collection, which could lead us to a transition? How do we actually define data gap in, in gender? I mean, I think that the need for data is insatiable. So the question is, how do we look up? What is the data that we're looking for? And one of the biggest gaps we have, I think I feel, is at least understanding uh, travel behavior. Now, one of the most interesting examples that I've seen in the last few years has been in uh, India, in the city of Bhubaneswar, where the city gender tagged their electronic ticket vending machines, which meant that the conductors who were issuing the tickets were doing it at the point of sale of a ticket. And I think that that is the kind of, those are the kind of interventions we really need because what it does is it gives me a timestamp. It gives me origin. It gives me destinations, which can help a public transport authority prioritize um, recommendations. So I think this is a really good example that, that, could scale up and that could really help collect one data point, which can then, of course, be supplemented with other um, others, other primary surveys as well. So this is one example that I hope and wish gets scaled up too. Thank you so so much. We 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 covered quite a lot of range of things today from the infrastructure side and walking and cycling as well as public transport. Uh, talked about also the safety issues and and data. Just also want to come up also with a with a final area which is probably just a little bit out of the range when you uh, talk about gender and and inequality, which is 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 a move to more recognition of the green agenda of the climate change agenda, and so obviously India has taken that that on to a, a, a large to a large extent uh, with large scale procurement on public transports uh, for electric buses, but also creating a more and pushing us for more support for electric rickshaws. So is there any gender dimension to that change and or to that attention to, to climate change from your perspective? I think one of the interesting pieces about, you know, the National Electric Bus Program and some of the tenders that have been issued by the national government is that they have, um, depending on, on in subsequent tenders, looked at 10 and 25% of women's staff in the buses or at the depots. So it's it's a progressive move. However, I don't think it's being monitored and it's not compulsory. It's not mandatory. So I think there is some recognition that we need to do. Uh, We need to address the gender gap in the transport workforce. But again, like I said, it's not mandatory. Uh, the second big piece, and I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, EV asset ownership. And particularly when, because India is prioritizing two-wheelers and uh, three-wheelers and commercial vehicles, our own research on the comparison between male and female e-rickshaw drivers revealed that we need to consider a safety household and care tax when we consider EV financing and especially subsidies. So what we did is we partnered with a membership-based organization in, in Delhi who was supporting resource poor women to purchase 
uh, e-rickshaws. And when we looked at how they were operating, we found that their route distances, because they were they generally tend to operate on fixed routes to and from the metro station, was about close to half the distance of the male e-rickshaw or, or owner operators. They were working about seven hours a day compared to 10 hours. And, and what were they doing in the three years? They were still working, but it was unpaid household and care work, right? So, so there's a disruption in their working hours. In an e-rickshaw, you typically have four plus one passenger. And many e-rickshaw drivers will have two seats in the front on either side. So in effect, a male e-rickshaw driver will carry six passengers. But due to safety concerns, a women e-rickshaw driver carries four passengers. And therefore, we saw that there was not only a reduction in the hours that they were working, but a, re- uh, a different, but they were carrying fewer passengers as well. And I think this was about 25 to 30%. So, you know, gender norms are playing out in different ways in the way in which a women e-rickshaw driver can operate in the current context. So I think that EV policies need to factor that in order to increase asset ownership amongst women e-rickshaw operators. So yeah, my I mean, we had a set of recommendations. I think the ecosystem is still young in understanding and accepting it. But I hope that, you know, we don't make the same mistake with um, a just, uh, you know, EV transition and we don't forget women in this process. Thank you for sharing us that that experience. And um, I, I think it's a very interesting aspect, as you said, to really move into so the right direction from the beginning on with so bringing that to a just transition. So now if we talk again in, in five years, what's your vision? What had been changed in those five years? Wow, I think this is a great question. One, I'm, I'm hoping that we see more women and gender minorities in decision-making positions. I envision that in decision-making positions of transport and urban development. I envision happy, you know, just uh, happy uh, families and caregivers um, using public spaces and public transport. And most importantly, Olga, this is my vision is we are seeing women loiter in public spaces, which means that they have time to enjoy themselves because this, you know, which means so many things. A public space is safe. They don't have uh, to bear the burden of household and care work disproportionately. So this is my vision. Women, girls and gender minorities loitering in public spaces. That is my vision. Wonderful. So that's that's a great closing. I can't couldn't add more. Thank you so much for taking your time. It was a real pleasure to do the podcast with you. Thank you so much for having me. Holgo. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. So thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the work of our guests and any of the resources, please check out the links in the description. I also encourage you to listen to the other episodes in the series. Also, you can leave us a rating, hopefully a good one, and a review. It really helps others find our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the High Volume Transport, you can check out our website at transport-links.com or 
or follow us on Twitter at transport underscore links or on LinkedIn at High Volume Transport Applied Research Program. The High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, HET, is an 18 million pound investment by the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. The program's new body of research aims to help inform decisions of policymakers in low-income countries and make road and rail transport greener, safe and more accessible and affordable. My name is Holger Dogman and you have been listening to Reimagining Motion. Thank you. Stay and travel safe wherever you are. Goodbye and I'll be you soon.